0: New York State bans cat declawing. What does this mean for your practice? We've got a feline expert to discuss this and so much more on the Veterinary Viewfinder. Welcome back to the Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And one of the topics that is constantly at the top of our list of tough topics is cat declawing and other types of procedures that maybe we shouldn't be doing as much of anymore yes i'm talking to you ear cropping and tail docking but regardless today we're going to focus on our feline patients and some big breaking news occurred recently the entire state of new york in the united states for those of you joining us elsewhere has just voted and signed into law a ban complete ban on cat declawing and this week we are really really happy we've got a super special guest but before we get into who we've got on the other line this week as always i am one of your hosts dr ernie ward
1: and i'm registered veterinary technician becky mosser
0: and guys we are so happy thrilled ecstatic overjoyed to have an old friend of the veterinary viewfinder podcast dr margie shirk who's a veterinarian and a feline specialist all the way from the great country of canada But she knows a thing or two about how these cat declaw bannings go because she has been at the front of the fight for a long long time but i want to welcome back once again to the veterinary viewfinder dr margie shirk
2: hey thanks ernie and and becky delighted to be here uh ernie just one thing not so sure i like you referring to me as old friend and, and been doing been at the forefront for a long time um, so I'll turn that one back on you. And you I can did
1: hear, though, that you started practicing when you were 10.
2: Hey, hey, hey. Oh, okay, Becky. That's, That's good. True. I, was just a, I was just a little brainiac, a little, yeah, whatever. Really good like Dookie
1: Hauser type <laughs> of the veterinary world. I've heard, I've heard. Bingo, bingo. Uh, well, you're, I, my, you're my fave. You're my fave.
0: <laughs> well, guys, we did a, a fantastic seminar. I'm sorry. We did a fantastic podcast with Dr. Shirk uh, about a year and a half ago, right after they had passed some legislation in Canada and Nova Scotia, that she again was one of the leaders in getting that passed. And so we wanted to have her back on right away to get her opinion on what this means for the United States and potentially the rest of the world. So, Margie, first of all, what do you think about this new state law banning feline decline?
2: So I'm thrilled by this. Um, This is very, very important um, ban. Let me just uh, back up just a teeny bit. You said that I was at the forefront of Nova Scotia. That's not the case. Hugh Chisholm, Dr. Chisholm, um, is responsible uh, for leading that um, uh, um, fight. Uh, Subsequent to Nova Scotia, the veterinarians in Nova Scotia banning the procedure it's then was banned in British Columbia, where I'm from, and I was certainly one of the people key people involved with that. Since then, we have an, um, also uh, uh, the other maritime provinces: Prince Edward Island, New Brunswick, Newfoundland and Labrador have banned it. Um, as have the uh, provinces of Alberta and um, uh, who else? Uh, Manitoba. S- still missing are uh, the big, biggest provinces, Ontario, uh, Quebec, and Saskatchewan. Now, what's key to understand that's different about the United States than Canada is that what we've done is it's been banned by veterinarians. So I think there's more power right. to the movement when it's sourced by veterinarians um, because we're trained to be animal advocates and promote animal welfare. Um, in the states, what's happened in the eight cities in um, uh, California, uh, and then in Denver, um, that's been led. While it's been led by um, veterinarians and promoted, especially by Dr. Jenny Conrad of of the Paw Project um, who played a big role in this, in this New York ban. What's happening there is those are, that's, those are being fought by the veterinarians and it's been elected municipal, or in this case state, um, officials passing the legislation. And understandably, veterinarians get upset because the, um, elected officials aren't the people trained to make these decisions. But when veterinary organizations don't step up to the plate, then somebody else has to do it. And it's difficult in the U.S. because it isn't mandatory for veterinarians to belong to the state um, associations, and those state associations don't have the same legal clout that veterinary associations do in Canada. We're self-regulating in Canada. Um, But what's interesting, too, is it being law... A uh, uh, decline being banned by law uh, when it was, you know, initially um, uh, uh, Representative um, uh, Linda Rosenthal uh, and her supporters and right. then uh, got that passed in June, and then just last week it was it was signed into law. And I was kind of chewing my nails in between the the fact that both houses had passed it, but Governor Cuomo could have been distracted and. Gotten onto something else, and of course, in the right. interim, the veterinary organizations were really um, uh, lobbying with him to that he not sign it, and thankfully he did. Or thankfully, from my perspective, anyways. Um, so that actually makes it illegal. So somebody could is breaking the law. A veterinarian is who does this, or in fact, I'm not even sure how it's how it's read. If anybody who isn't a veterinarian. Uh, Because uh, horrifyingly, there are people who are not veterinarians who take this upon themselves to crop more to crop ears and dock tails than to um, declock hats. But um, it's it is something which uh, uh, they I don't know about them, but that's actually breaking the law. Whereas in Canada, the way it is is you will lose your veterinary license, but you but it's not you don't go to jail over it. So there's, um, nevertheless, I still think that for it to come from veterinarians is, gives it a lot of, uh, credence, because we are, and we need to be at the forefront. We need to be the leaders rather than, you know, pecking at and picking at from behind. In Ontario, the, uh, the, uh, Ontario Veterinary, not, uh, the, the OVA, Ontario Veterinary Association, um, did a survey, and they found that amongst the, like, who was pro, who was con, and they found that it was the older veterinarians who were still pro-decline, whereas the younger veterinarians um, were against it. And the older veterinarians, or the numbers still leaned towards that so that there were more veterinarians, not by a big uh, gap, but unfortunately there were still more veterinarians who thought that decline should be Doable, um, uh, sh- or should be allowed. Um, so I'm really, really hoping that in Ontario they recognize where the future is, and that they pay attention to uh, the you know future, of ed- the future of the profession, as opposed to um, the um, n- past leaders and and you know <laughs> people like me. Anyways, I hope they're paying more attention to the to the the, the incoming um, people. As you so kindly pointed out, thank
0: you, Ernie. Well, Margie, one of the things we talk about a lot on the podcast, and Becky, I always appreciate you bringing this to the forefront of the discussion, and that is, yes, this should be led by veterinarians, especially when it comes to animal welfare issues like this one, I would argue. And yet this was strongly and adamantly opposed in New York by the New York State Veterinary Medical Society. And, And so really... The people who were arguing against declawing were veterinarians. Now, to their credit, their argument went something along general lines like this. They said, look, what is the alternative? And we believe that declawing is actually uh, an acceptable alternative. To euthanasia for cats, you know, for owners of cats who maybe had an impaired immune system or on chemotherapy, they had diabetes or other clotting disorders, things like that. And so they felt like, you know, what veterinarians should be the ones who make that ultimate decision. And, you know, what do you what do you say to that? I mean, that was really that was their main argument.
2: Right. And, you know, the other argument that's that's um, really laughable is the one that goes that they can't, uh, and this was one that um, um, Dr. Laszlo had to really fight in Denver is that landlords could, uh, you know, m- require that their cats be declawed. Well, that's total nonsense because cats don't scratch walls, cats don't scratch doors, cats, you know, and, dis- and destroy them. Um, and, and it, to me, it comes to uh, uh, let's go. Let's go to the science first, and then I'll go to the to the uh, moral uh, question. But the science is uh, when you when you with these veterinarians would spend time on the. Um, if, if, you know, my esteemed colleagues would spend time looking at what the Center for Disease Control says. First off, with respect to Bartonella hensley or cat scratch disease, um, that is spread by, through flea frass or flea dirt as it's more commonly known. Um, And so therefore, flea control, Regular, routine fleet control deals with that issue. With respect to uh, a, a person uh, an, an, uh, um, with uh, an immunocompromised system, maybe they're an older person, maybe it's a young child, maybe it's somebody on, on chemotherapy, corticosteroids, or somebody with HIV, um, those individuals, again, tr- trimming nails is, even if a person can't trim nails, it's they, still, um, uh, they're, a cat is more likely to bite Um, uh, which will cause far greater problems if they can't use their first line of defense, um, i.e. scratching. And so the CDC does not, even on the HIV, the immunocompromised page, they specifically say declawing is not recommended. So I think that that's really, really important. Now, as to the moral aspect of it, if and Trevor Noah, just a couple of nights ago, I don't know whether you saw that clip or not, he posted, he talked about, he wasn't completely right where he talked about clipping cat's um, uh, fingers as opposed to, and of course it's not that, it's actually amputation. Um, and the nails just happen to be attached to the, the, um, the last bone in the, in, in the uh, digit. Uh, but the, or in the phalanx rather, but the, um, uh, what he said is, scratching is part of being a cat. If you don't want somebody who scratches,
0: you don't know, get a cat.
2: Don't get a cat. And for us to be mutilating, and I use that term deliberately, uh, and, uh, and I realize it's provocative, but to, for us to be mutilating another species to, for something that is at absolutely no benefit to that individual, and this is where people might cry out, yes, but then they'll be given, they'll be given away or they'll be euthanized. That is actually not true, and in fact, in the eight cities in California where declawing um, has been banned um, uh, uh, municipally, those uh, the shelters there have not seen an increase in animals, cats being surrendered. That said, they also other. It's not just due to the uh, the uh, lack of. Um, being able to declaw um, because other uh, initiatives have been put into place there as well. But the stats are there that there was no increase in uh, surrendering of cats. So to my esteemed colleagues I would use this analogy which undoubtedly will offend many um, and that is that when a, if I am approached in a bar uh, by somebody who says, hey, sweetie, um, uh, you, you know, would you sleep with me for 200 bucks? And I slap them and say, how very dare you, um, you know, that's not what I do. And then the same person comes back and says, what about for 5 million? (laughs) And if I pause, then the, the whole conversation becomes, we know what you are, we're just quibbling about the price. So it's it's really uh, and that's about as offensive and, and but I apo- I apologize for being offensive but I do want if it, if it offends uh, if it offends a listener to me that means that it strikes a chord and unfortunately we are if we are animal advocates we all went into veterinary medicine not to make a buck not for fame you know not for celebrity or or fortune that's just not it you know we go into it because we love animals and we want to help them. and somehow, somewhere through in veterinary school and this is a whole other topic we lose fact and we lose sight of that and believe that we work for the clients, rather than that who we are, we are doctors and our patients are our, our, our nonverbal by and large, unless you're dealing with certain. Um, birds, and they're non nonverbal, and it's up to us to be advocating for them animal welfare.
0: I don't know that I see it that way, Margie, because these initiatives, at least in the United States, have been led by the public. I mean, this these in these cities in in California and this New York State legislation, this was primarily brought about by animal lovers, by people, by non-veterinarians. Right. So what I'd like to know, and I've seen certain polling around this, but what's your opinion, and and or maybe some of the data that you could share with us, on the public's attitude towards declawing? Because to me, the signals are pretty clear that the average cat owner in America and Canada is saying, I'm not so sure that I'm comfortable with cat declawing anymore.
2: And that's, that's a really, really great point. And this is why, again, when I did my... Um, uh, when I was pushing in British Columbia and I set up a change.org site, I got um, 92,000 signatures, which is phenomenal. I was hoping for 10. Right,
0: I know? remember that. So
2: yeah. 92,000 signatures in a very short, in a matter of weeks. And so that speaks to exactly what you're saying, is that the when, it, again, it's up to veterinarians to educate and not to be saying, Um, would you, you know, would you like fries with that?
1: You know, to make your, your point is incredible. And, and you know, I agree with everything that you're saying and and I regularly say, I I, I see so much frustration and feel so much frustration when major change is not brought about by the veterinary industry. But, you know, I have to kind of wonder if to some extent, you know, I, I really think about it in the fact of. When we go to conferences, we go to these national conferences. There's thousands of of veterinary professionals there. We talk, we mingle, we learn, we share mentality. But I think what we forget is, I mean, truthfully, there are hundreds of thousands of veterinary professionals Mm -hmm. in the country, right? Mm -hmm. So a small fraction of them are actually out there gaining the knowledge and being surrounded by maybe this forefrontal thinking and so it is so incredibly important to have these conversations on every level we can because you have to plant that seed because i think there is and i don't want to say a justifiable mentality but i i understand being caught up in the yeah but i have had to end the life of animals who Mm -hmm. Right. You know, scratched up the furniture, scratched the baby, you know, did something. And so because this leads to our own emotional burnout, our own issues in, in this industry, do we justify it? Because it is to us a fate better than death. But then then is it? And so when when we talk about we look at the numbers, newer veterinarians are like, yeah, no, I'm not doing this. I'm just not going to do it because they come up with the mentality of understanding that this isn't how it how it should be. But. We do have a hard time changing the mind when we have veterinarians who have experienced the emotional um, frustration and the emotional, you know, um, darkening, right, of, of that soul blackening of having to, to deal with these situations with clients who have ha- had it, quote unquote. So how can we get how do we get that seed unplanted how do you what do you talk to that point to people who are caught up in those old hang-ups because the truth is they're there right they're still there
2: we you're you're absolutely right and we are uh but doing this um you know this podcast um making it we're just splashing it everywhere when I'm lecturing when I'm lecturing about analgesia especially about chronic pain when I'm you know I, I we're constantly trying to get this in there. The AAFP, American Association of Failing Practitioners, has, has got some great, uh, they, they've got a very strong statement against declawing. Um, and they've got some really good resources and it's I think letting people know that there are resources out there there are brochures for clients there are um, uh, and, and and to your point, Becky, it may not be the clients that need the brochures it's actually the veterinarians um, where we need to change it now to your point resa vis the um, burnout and and suicide um, uh, risk in amongst veterinarians again, I would say that that um, our when, when we cave to these things, we do our souls, if yep. you want to use that term, damage. Yeah. And so I have always said to clients when, you know, a client has said, but I have to get them declawed because grandmother, baby, landlord, whatever. It's just like, I need to, I, I respect that you have this need. And I ask that you respect the fact that I cannot do this because I need to sleep with myself at night. Yeah. And I cannot do this. Um, uh, I, and, and I actually came up with a whole lot of, I mentioned this back uh, in the previous podcast. Yes, um, you did. The, the, the talking points, uh, which essentially outline every, mm, co- every comment that a veterinary health care professional or a client might have around about why they need to do this and how to respond to that, and I think that having those as to, that as a tool would be useful. One thing I did want to mention is sort of um, alongside that then is that um, in Canada not only if the the those uh, seven provincial veterinary medical associations banned the procedure, but most most excitingly or or very excitingly anyways vCA. So Veterinary Clinics of America, the, uh, right. the, they have hospitals in five Canadian provinces. And um, their medical director, Dr. Janie, uh, Dr. Danny Joffe, um, uh, banned the procedure across all of the VCA clinics in Canada back in uh, shortly after BC banned it.
0: And it was well-received by the public. I mean, they got a lot of it press out of that. It was extremely
2: well. Yes. And so if, you know, if I really, you know, there are over 700 VCA hospitals in 43 states of the U.S., as well, Banfield, which has over 900 hospitals, and together they could really, really lead the way in the U.S. in, in changing, you know, the mentality of the practitioner who isn't hearing the message from um, going to continuing education or um, being, you know, hearing it from some other modality. So I think that really... Uh, and I'm actually going to be talking about this um, when i uh, in at the end of um, August when I speak at the at a VCA meeting in in Albuquerque, um, and I'm talking about pain. so it's it's really trying to get those big those big groups have so much power if we can convince them that I think that veterinarians are often we don't like confrontation. We are. We are very caring, we are very empathic, we are a wonderful group of people, Um, but we don't like confrontation. And so we don't want our clients to be upset with us. And so that then puts us into a state of moral distress. And we, but by caving we are in even more of a state of distress. And let me tell you, whenever I have stood up to a client in a very respectful manner, just saying, literally, you know, saying as I did, I respect the fact you're right to have a different opinion than I do, and I would ask you to respect my right to have the same, uh, to also to have a difference in opinion. And this isn't something that I can do. And when my st- staff heard that, they felt such pride, and they felt that that I was really behind them because, Becky, as I'm sure you can attest, the, when we're looking at the, um, what staff want, um, they absolutely don't want to be doing this procedure.
1: That's right. Yep. that's absolutely right well
0: you know and margie too there's there's also opportunity for people to evolve on issues like this look yeah. when I graduated nearly 30 years ago declaw was just a matter of fact like you did it we, we didn't know what we know now and look I feel ashamed for being ignorant of these things but margie the science just wasn't there to back it up right. like this was just like a lot of the things we did but then as you kind of got into practice you realize hmm you know I'm trying this and that to make it better but it still doesn't feel better and I did a real simple revenue exercise I just looked at how much was this procedure actually contributing to my bottom line and what would happen if it went away. And you know what? It didn't make much difference at all to my bottom line revenue right. and profitability. So that was an easy decision. And I would encourage you if you're listening out there today, unless like your practice specializes in ear cropping and tail docking and declawing, chances are its contribution to your bottom line does not equal or offset the, the emotional turmoil and pain that it's causing. So you know, again, that's just a simple thing, to an exercise to perform. Becky, what about this though element that, you know what, maybe the doctor's cool with it and maybe the doctor caves into the client or maybe the doctor just says, you know what, I appreciate your right to do this, therefore I'm just gonna do the best service because I don't wanna euthanize it. But what about the impact on the support staff?
1: Yeah, no, it's important. And, you know, it's not something that I I don't know about in vet school or at least where I went to tech school. It wasn't something we really talked about. We certainly didn't learn anything about it. So all of a sudden I'm out there in practice and this is on the schedule. And, and right. now we're like doing this. And I'm like, what? This is horrible. So it was, you know, and not to sound, you know, um, overly dramatic, but it was it was a pretty traumatic experience for the first time when you you don't realize exactly what's going into this. And, and now you're a part of it. And then there you kind of are in the middle of it, right? And and it's your job and um, you don't want to say anything. You don't want to say this seems really wrong or this is really awful. And in your clients, you know, they a lot of times if they're asking for this, again, it's an old school mentality and they can be really open to learning differently. So I think for support staff, it is a great opportunity to, um, you know, just have that educational conversation about this being something that a lot of people used to do. But did you know? we, we really don't want to judge what our clients already do and don't know. But at the end of the day, yeah, for your support staff, if, if these are procedures you're doing out there, they, they're hard. They're hard on your support staff. And and, and like like Dr. Margie said, we really don't want to be doing them. Right.
0: Margie, I'll share with you a story that uh, somebody emailed me recently. And and again, this is anonymous, kind of a social media exchange, but I'd like to get your feedback on it and and Becky's as well. And basically the story goes like this. It's a young uh, cat owner. So this is a woman who I, I'm guessing from the uh, tone of the, the conversation was probably in her late 20s to mid 30s, but a young millennial type of, of cat owner. She comes in to the clinic, she's gone through the kitten vaccines and so forth, and it's time to Schedule the cat spay. And apparently, it's sort of like just normal de facto standard of care that they ask the client if she wants to have the cat declawed at the same time. Do you want fries with that? Exactly. Do you want fries with that? And so. Right. So apparently, this owner had never considered it and was kind of caught off guard and didn't really know what to do, went for it. She. and you know where this ends quickly, right? You know how this wound up on social media. So then when she finally, you know, gets the cat home and is having some issues or, or perceived or real, it doesn't matter, but then she investigates the procedure, becomes outraged at the veterinarian, feels like she was coerced into doing this, which is how I found out about the story because this person's making social media noise. So y- y- how do we transcend, how do we get beyond that? Because this is a, would you like fries with that burger and shake? Uh, you know, h- how do we get beyond that? And, and more importantly, are we doing a good enough job of actually educating the public on what the procedure entails?
2: Right and this is really really key and, and I'll also say that, that 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 procedure does irreparable or or that method, I should say uh, of recommending any procedure does irreparable harm to the uh, reputation of the profession because that individual now feels betrayed. Right. Their trust has been betrayed um, because they trust that veterinarians are only going to recommend what 's in the best interest of their of their pet, and to do anything else is abject betrayal of the of the trust and it is also betraying the reputation of the profession so I think that that 's really, really serious, and to me, you know if we 're talking about things that the VMAs should be investigating, it's that kind of thing uh, and, and going after because we're supposed, the VMAs are supposed to be protecting the integrity of the profession and and making sure that clients aren't being misled into, uh, or, or, or that clients are being um, well cared for um, and, and, and veterinarians are behaving as it were. So, I think this is a a, a real problem we're back to that you you asked about education, and I think again it's just continuing to to you know the the benefit of social media is you reach a lot of people the The downside of it is you're you're in an echo chamber, so you're not reaching the a lot of the people who need to hear this message but i again, I think it does percolate through whereby um in that situation, it should have been, the onus was on the veterinary team, the entire team, because we don't know with whom, you know, who made that recommendation. Right, We don't know, you know, and, and, at any point, you know, do you know what this procedure entails? An ovarian hysterectomy or spaying your cat means removing their, their uh, making sure it's not just the end effect so that they can't reproduce and pet population control, but it's, it's, it's making a small incision in the abdomen. The kitty will be, to remove, da-da-da, the kitty will be, will, will be sending home pain relief Blah blah blah, um, uh, etc. Keep them quiet for whatever ahead of time, knowing these things. And same thing with, um, uh, same thing with, um, with uh, any other procedure, including um, uh, mutilation of the paws. That uh, said, too, it also it's it's like we need to pre-educate, and this is something that's very near and dear to your heart. Ernie is uh, the fact that when we want to educate people when they they have to get that cat as a kitten, then remind them uh, at the t- before spaying and neutering them that their that their metabolic energy requirements are going Hormonal to changes, yeah, and that if we make the and if and so over the next two weeks or so we want to reduce the number of calories that you're giving your cat by about 20 to 25 percent to help prevent obesity. Right. So you know again it's up to rather than us being Engine and, and once the individual is obese, or once the individual has behavior problems, or has um, uh, pain in their paws, or associated with pain in their paws, is peeing in the house, um, and all these other things that can happen, or biting, um, uh, it then that or aggression uh, is, is otherwise aggressive towards other individuals. Um, those things we need to pre uh, treat or pre educate rather than try and deal with it after the fact no no easy fix on
0: it <laughs> no no easy fix but but again you know this normal sort of normalization of the procedure without really adequately educating the client, I think it's problematic. And especially as we enter into a new generation of pet owners who probably see things a little differently, it doesn't mean there's a right or a wrong, which I think is part of the debate that happened in New York. Basically, these people, you know, the the New York Veterinary Medical Society basically said, what options do you have? All you're saying is just train your cat not to do it. Well, you know what? I'm going to have to euthanize those cats. And that may or may not be true, right? And and so I, I think it just stalls the debate, actually shuts down the debate. But I think we need to recognize that younger pet owners, younger cat owners are maybe saying wait a second i'm really interested in learning about this training i will clip my du- my cat's nails you know right i think we had a generation who are like no that sounds ridiculous i could never imagine myself you know doing anything with my cat you know but now aren't we entering into an era where people are like of course i can do that
2: well, we are, and if we look at the data from the, um, uh, what are, is the animal, what is it called, the uh, the uh, uh, Animal Pet in- Health Insurance Association, um, as of 2018's data, there are, in within the United States, there are 94 million uh, pets, or, or pet cats, quote, owned, unquote, in the U.S., and I think that uh, given the life expectancy of, of cats, which thankfully is, is is longer than it used to be, but that means that a person, uh, a, a client or, or pet owner, is going to have multiple cats through their lives. And we've got young millennials and, and who are more in tune with the, uh, because of different interests and different, uh, stresses on their lives, in tune with um, other needs for, for cats. It goes along with, with the growing awareness of cat-friendly, of fear-free, of what is needed in the homes.
0: Enrichment, yeah, yeah, all these things,
2: right. Yeah, species-typical behaviors. It's not even really enrichment. It's actually just meeting their needs, unmet needs, and having catios and other things like that. So these things, I, you know, there's a growing with that. So I do see it's really... I honestly think that it's a dinosaur, it's dying, this right, procedure right. is dying, is dying out, The but I just wish there weren't so much fight about it, and people being offended about it, so I think that it, it, it is a procedure that is is coming to its end, but the concern I have is, and this is what used to keep me a, awake at night, and it can't, it can't, is that every day we don't move this, there are hundreds of cats who who's who are having their fingers amputated and w- live with that forever.
0: And, and Margie, for me, what, it, what keeps me up at night is, do we become irrelevant to animal welfare yeah. arguments? Do we become part of that dinosaur that dies? And they go, you know, that's the profession that kept supporting all, you know, horse soaring or, you know, or, right. or ear cropping or declawing, right? We don't want, I don't think we want to be that profession. Right.
1: Well, and it's hard to argue with our with the notion when people are saying you're in it for money, you just want money when you're doing these procedures It seem barbaric that everyday lay people are having to come to us and say, please stop doing this because it right. looks terrible. How are we arguing and saying we are really truly in it for the welfare of animals if we are doing harm? And how is that in any way, you know, keeping, keeping to an oath? It just seems so contradictive.
2: Yeah, and the, and the fact that, you know, veterinarians are saying, well, if I don't, I'll have to euthanize. No, who's got a gun to your head? I'm right. Who, when do you ever have to euthanize? It's up, if, if again, when I say respectfully, if this isn't something I can do, and I understand that if this is something you feel you have to have done, you will, that you will, I will respectfully ask that you go to a different clinic. Now, hopefully, that's, that's when it's, when it's clinic-driven. I mean, but that also goes to not just, it could be somebody whose cat is blocked, and they can't afford the whatever, you know, they don't want to have their cat unblocked, or it's the fifth time, or whatever, or that it is, and, and they don't want to consider the alternative non-decompressive you know, cystocentesis, um, sedating, uh, quiet room, Right procedure. Um, and, and then it's still, it's still up to me to say, I'm sorry, here, here are some options. You can you know, here are some options. They do not include euthanizing your cat. We can, you know, you can, I, I'm happy to send medical, tell me which clinic you would like me to send your medical records to, and we'll get on that immediately. So there's no discontinu- dis- discontinuity of care for, your cat, um, uh, we can also, uh, in my clinic, we would adopt those cats and, you know, rehome them. So that's, you know, another possibility, not available for every, every uh, uh, clinic, of course, and certainly it's easier when you're the owner rather than the associate, um, uh, depending on the clinic you're in. But there are alternatives. At no point does it, unless a person has a gu- literally has a gun to, one of your staff person's heads, you know, your child's head, your right. head, you do not have to euthanize anybody.
0: As we close up today's conversation, because we could go on and on with you about this, and I love talking with you about this, but just say once again, there is clear evidence that this procedure causes harm to our feline patients.
2: Yes, absolutely. And, and f- first off, it, it, it Absolutely causes harm. We know that that cats will use their litter boxes differently, stop using their litter boxes. You know, we have scientific evidence that even in cats, and it doesn't matter whether it's one of the other arguments, it doesn't matter how good your pain control is around, during, or after the procedure. It doesn't matter whether you're using laser, it doesn't make it any better. Because you're still frying the ends of of the of the nerves, and these cats have different kinetics, bio kinetics of uh, to their gait, and it's it they're they are designed to ha- walk on their uh, walk on their toes, and yeah. we are removing, we are changing the the chemistry or the uh, mechanics there.
0: Yep, and I have a, an oath on my wall, probably like you do, or many of our listeners as well, and it says, "I will strive to promote animal health and welfare, relieve animal suffering." protect the health of public and environment, and advance comparative medical knowledge. And to me, this is one of those issues that, you know, again, over my career, I evolved, I changed, I learned, I stopped, and I really applaud the uh, good folks in New York State for taking a big step. But more importantly, I applaud people like you, Dr. Shirk, for all that you've done to champion the welfare of cats. So thanks again for joining us.
2: My pleasure.
0: Well, you've heard what we have to say. Now we want to hear from you. What do you think about a state banning, outlawing, feline declaws. Is this something you're happy to see or maybe you have reservations about? We want to hear from you.
1: Make sure you tell us how you handle these conversations within your clinic. What are your policies and as a new veterinarian, what have you done to make it clear this isn't a procedure that you're comfortable doing? How do you feel about New York State's decision? Let us know. You can find us on social media, on Instagram at vetviewfinder, on Facebook at veterinary viewfinder, and at on Twitter at veterinary viewfinder. And while you are at iTunes, leave us a couple stars, some feedback. Let us know how we're doing. And don't forget to click to subscribe so you don't miss one great episode of the Veterinary Viewfinder.
0: Until next time. Bye.
1: Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
0: That was a great conversation. You know, I'm so happy we actually got to have it. I just wish it was like uh, 50 states. Yeah, right.
1: Exactly. (laughs)